Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Olson. This podcast is produced to give fundraisers and nonprofit leaders like you the tools to increase mission impact. Tune in weekly so you don't miss a thing. Your mission is critical. Your resources are finite. You need a partner that can deliver customized, scalable, and relevant donor communications that increase response and maximize net long-term revenue for your cause. You need Altus Marketing. Check us out at altusmktg.com or email me directly at a-o-l-s-e-n at a-l-t-u-s-m-k-t-g.com to learn how we can elevate your fundraising results. And now here's today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is Andrew Olson, your host, and I'm here uh, with Dr. Russell James today, who is the Director of Graduate Studies in uh, Charitable Financial Planning and the CH Foundation Chair in Personal Financial Planning at Texas Tech University. His research has shaped the field of charitable gift planning across North America, and I'm thrilled to have him on the show today. You're in for a real treat today. Dr. James, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here. We appreciate you making time. I'm really excited and looking forward to getting into this content with you. Before we jump into our questions, though, take a few minutes, if you would, tell our listeners a little bit more about um, who you are and the, the work that you do on a daily basis. Sure. So I, I guess let me go back to uh, after I graduated from law school, I started out in uh, fundraising, focused on plan giving. And uh, I also had an estate planning practice along the way. And uh, over the years, I gradually realized that the whole college professor thing was what I wanted to do. So I got my PhD in consumer economics. Uh, my dissertation was on charitable giving. Uh, and uh, along the way, in the meantime, the uh, uh, college where I had been working in plan giving uh, asked me to serve as the president of the college, which I did for about five and a half years. Um, you know, the institution uh, was uh, successful during that time. And uh, honestly, in that place, the president's role was very much of a fundraising role focused on major gifts and managing fundraisers. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we built several new debt-free buildings and more than tripled on-campus enrollment. Uh, so that was all good. But honestly, when that position ended, my career goal was to not be anyone's boss. <laughs> so <laughs> since then, I've been focused just on teaching and research uh, for several years as a faculty member at the University of Georgia and now as a professor here at Texas Tech University. So I combine that background with uh, having been in fundraising, planned gifts, and major gifts uh, with my uh, research now, focusing as a, as a researcher to really just try to understand how do we best encourage generosity. That's a that's I think a, a fascinating uh, question to ask and, and field to be in. I mean, there's so many uh, consultants and and different folks who say, "Oh, these are the you know ten things you have to do to raise more money or whatever," right? But sure. it, in, in almost every instance, it's still raising that money from the same group of people who, on average, give the same amount, you know, relatively every year. So the idea of how do we increase generosity, I think, is really the question that could be a game changer for the industry. Um, yeah, that's what I'm fascinated by is kind of some of those underlying principles that uh, that can uh, move people. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we're going to get into more of that in just a few minutes. But, you know, I, I was as I was preparing for our conversation, I was reflecting on the fact that I first heard your name a couple of years ago um, when I had a conversation with Greg Warner, who um, is a mutual friend of ours. He's, he's the president of Market Smart. And I, I'm curious. What's your connection? I, I know that you guys have a relationship. Um, I, I hear rumors of some sort of collaboration coming from the two of you. 
What's what can you tell me about that? Sure, sure. So the background is really this. I, I'm just a professor. I'm a researcher, and I share all of my stuff for free. You know, books and videos and papers and slide sets. And uh, anybody who's connected with me on LinkedIn knows that I just send them this ridiculous response that has links to everything I've ever done. But much of what I'm finding uh, over the years. Uh, actually, it really resonates with the practical success that Greg is having with his clients and his approaches. So uh, over the years, the practice has been that Greg will take this material and then he puts it into forms that create practical solutions for his clients. Uh, and then he can communicate it to a much larger audience than, than I ever could. You know, I, I like to joke that I will give you an answer, but Greg will give you a solution. And there's a difference between those two. Uh, so, you know, over the years, he's created CFRE trainings and ebooks and visual flip books and other practically useful products for, for fundraisers. So, you know, right now I have a brand new um, book series um, and which I'm sharing with everyone. And uh, he is working on ways to convert that into uh, actual real world training solutions for his clients. So basically I put out the raw materials and, and he turns it into something powerful that, that works for his clients. Very cool. Okay. So let's talk about that book series. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, if I'm correct, it's the Fundraising Myth and Science Series. Is that, is that right? That's right. Yes. So tell me more about it and tell, tell us why you wrote it. Well, so this started out with just a very reasonable sort of uh, project. I, I thought it was reasonable. The idea was I wanted to take all of the uh, experimental research related to giving, generosity, philanthropy, sharing, and convert it into some core practical suggestions for effective fundraising. Now, honestly, I planned on that being about a six-month project. Instead, it became my life focus for over five years. Uh, it turns out there's a lot of work that's been done on this. But my goal was not to make something that was long and technical and academic, but instead to make something that was very short. Uh, so the result is to take tens of thousands of pages of academic research and convert it into something that's clear and simple and actionable. And so that's really the goal of this uh, new uh, series of uh, books in the uh, Fundraising Myth and Science series. Awesome. So we're going to talk a little bit today about um, one of those books, The Storytelling Fundraiser, which um, I, it was the first in the series that I looked at and there's some fascinating, uh, ideas in it. So I want to, I want to unpack some of those with you. I, I was amused that you, you start that book with an anecdote from the movie city slickers, which I think is a great, great choice to, to pick from. Um, and, and you talk about the, the idea of the one big thing and the, and the one big thing in fundraising, which you argue is to advance the donor's hero story. Tell us more about that. Well, so as I went through this research uh, summary process and uh, trying to find out the underlying principles, my goal was not to just end up with a laundry list of hundreds of different experiments and random practitioner tips and tricks. Instead, the goal was always to simplify, to get to the core, to get to the heart of how can we encourage generosity. And in particular, how to encourage major transformational gifts and not just the small social compliance gifts that a lot of times researchers like to experiment with. And ultimately, this journey led to story. 
and and more than that, it led to specific core elements of story. As it turns out, those core story elements are found in Joseph Campbell's monomyth or universal hero story. Now, in that monomyth, the hero progresses from uh, original identity, starting in his original small self-focused world. He, he or she is then faced with the challenge. This is the call to adventure. Uh, he rejects and then accepts the challenge engages in a journey where he overcomes difficulties, but ultimately wins a victory. And afterwards, he returns to that place of beginning, his original source of identity, with a gift to enhance that world. So he returns as an internally and externally transformed, victorious hero. So in other words, the story ends with the confirmation of his or her enhanced identity. Now, I say all that because that same circular process of the donor's identity connection with the gift challenge that promises a meaningful victory resulting in an enhanced identity for the donor kept emerging both in academic research and in effective fundraising practice. Now, not everybody was connecting all of the different pieces. Some would work with just one side, others would work with just another piece, but ultimately it ended up supporting this circular process. So advancing the donor's hero story means something very specific. It means progressing through the steps of linking the donor's original identity to the challenge, the challenge to a victory, and the victory to an enhanced identity for the donor. And when we talk about identity, sources of identity are things like the donor's uh, values, the donor's people, and the donor's life history. Okay, so a follow-up for you on this. There's, yeah. there's been an argument emerging out of the community-centered fundraising movement that suggests that we should actually downplay the role that donors have in our sector, uh, even to the point of, of pushing back sometimes pretty aggressively on, you know, any sort of narrative related to donor as hero. Um, how, what are your thoughts on that? And how does that square with, with the research and the real world results that you've seen? Sure, sure. So I guess I don't take as aggressive of an approach as I've seen from uh, some of those, but look, this is a common and understandable view. To understand where it comes from, it's because this embraces a different hero story that is uh, simultaneously incompatible with the donor hero story. So some examples of alternative hero stories, for example, charities will commonly embrace the administrator hero story. Now, this is a story. So, so right. So this is a story where the charity administrators are the heroes. They're battling ignorance or disease or inequality. And in that story, the donors really only play a bit part. You know, they appear and then they honor the administrator's heroism by laying money at their feet and then they're supposed to disappear. Hmm. Now, this is a compelling story, but only for the charity administrators. And honestly, it can still lead to a pat on the head gift or an isn't that nice for you gift, but it rarely leads to the major life savings investment gift. Now, that can be compounded by a class conflict story in which high-capacity donors 
aren't merely bit players. They're actually the villains. So if you embrace a class conflict story in which high capacity donors are the villain, you're necessarily going to reject the donor hero story, especially in a major gifts context. So a key issue with the administrator hero story or even the class conflict story isn't that they aren't true. An issue is that they don't work for major gifts fundraising. So I actually have no problem at all with the stance that says we should be willing to defund our causes so that we can fundraise in this morally superior way. That's a value judgment, and it may fit a person's set of values, and I'm completely fine with that. But I'm more focused on the objective outcome side, not the uh, subjective side. So I'm focused on what works to bring resources to a cause. Now, a choice not to use those methods is a perfectly valid choice, but to the extent that donors of capacity get to operate in a system of choice rather than a system of force, it's important to recognize the trade-offs for using a message in which these donors are the villains. That is probably the best distillation of, of of those different systems that I've heard so far. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I anticipate many angry comments because this is a, this is a field that is filled with anger and vitriol. So it, it, we'll see I, I've, been, uh, I've been attacked a few times myself already. So I, I uh, for in, in this conversation, so I, uh, I fully expect it as well, but I, I think that's a really um, clarifying way to think about this. So you mentioned already that, that your work is largely focused on, on um, major gifts, legacy giving, things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know, I've been I've been doing this work for a couple of decades now, and oftentimes in my experience, uh, nonprofit leaders and fundraisers have this this perspective, particularly around plan giving, that it's all about sort of the technical legal aspects and you know the <clears throat> having the right um, plan giving vehicle and all the legalese around it. And you need that in order to be successful. But it seems from what I've read, um, in, in your most recent book that the, the research suggests that the storytelling has an even, you know, a significant impact on your ability to generate legacy gifts as well. Can you, can you talk more about that and how that might be different from some of those other approaches? Sure. And look, I've got to admit, this is hard for me. I'm a tax geek. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a data analyst guy. And so I never planned to study story. Uh, and, and in fact, it's just something that kept coming up again and again in the research. Let me give you an example. So part of the research that I do is actually in neuroimaging. We put people in a brain scanner and we have them make charitable decisions, uh, including major gifts of assets, which we do by asking them about estate giving, which is a, a, an example of a committing to a gift from assets rather than from disposable income. So in some of this published research on decision-making in charitable bequest giving, what we found in the brain scanner is that as people were making these decisions, they, they were more likely to engage the 
autobiographical visualization areas of the brain. And the more they engage these autobiographical visualizations areas of the brain, the more willing and interested they were in making a charitable bequest to that uh, particular organization that they were being asked about. So it really started with this neuroimaging research, looking at the importance of what you might call life review or life story. Now, later, we actually took that concept and used it to create a bunch of different phrases to see what's the most effective phrase to increase people's interest in making a variety of different planned gifts. And it turns out that people are more interested uh, if you ask them about not just uh, uh, their interest in make a gift in a will uh, to a charity, but make a gift in a will to support causes that have been important in your life. So every time we added that phrase, to support causes that have been important in your life, onto a description of any kind of uh, complex or planned gift, uh, it actually bumped up people's interest in that gift. Well, that fits with the neuroimaging that says there's a life review process that is taking place when people are thinking about these kinds of gifts. Uh, Now, in uh, recent years, one of the things that I have uh, learned is that rather than just being a whole uh, bag of different uh, tax tips and tricks and trusts and all of that, that really the most powerful concept that this touches on with our donors is that we are moving them to make major gifts of assets. So the idea of encouraging major gifts of assets is different than asking for gifts from disposable income. And so that's really the dividing line, that it's not just a matter of, well, you know, does this involve something death-related or tax-related or trust-related? It's really, are we talking about major gifts of assets uh, or are we just talking about disposable income gifts? Okay. So a couple of things that I want to follow up on there. I I, I want to get to the assets versus income in a second, but your, your description of, of sort of how, how the, the neuroimaging uh, showed that, that people were, you know, it was activating the autobiographical area of the brain. Does that suggest that this decision-making process, you know, that there's sort of the two camps, philanthropy is altruism and philanthropy is self-serving. Does, and and there may be more, but I'm just going to make it simple that way. Does this, research suggest that this decision-making is more so aligned with sort of a a self-serving decision-making process? Is that what you're saying here? So it's more the idea of depends on how you define the self. Okay. When people are focused, especially on any end-of-life decisions, uh, the first reaction of most people is simply, simply avoidance. But when we get beyond that, there is this desire for what in the experimental psychology literature is called the pursuit of symbolic immortality. It's the idea that some part of my identity will live on beyond me. Some part of what makes me me, my people, my values, my story will live on. And so the idea of helping the donor see how a charitable gift can take their identity, meaning take their values or their life story, their people, their community, and help that, help those sources of identity to continue on after their life is very powerful in this area of fundraising. 
So it is an area where, depending upon how you define the self, it's actually both things. It is selfish in the sense of those values that define my identity, myself. I want them to continue on um, indefinitely, even beyond my life, um, uh, rather than just sort of the narrow consumption definition of, of a self. Okay. So, so going back to the uh, the asset versus income conversation, you know, it, it seems to me that this is a, a really often overlooked opportunity for organizations in that, you know, it's, it's fairly rare um, that, that an organization will, will say anything other than please send a gift today, or even, even in a major gift ask, you know, making an ask, an assumption that the donor is going to write a check, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What have you learned in your research about the difference in the decision-making around uh, giving from assets versus from income? And, and what have you seen in sort of real world impact of those decisions? Sure. So it's really powerful because the differences here are massive. And I'm not just sharing that as kind of a just so story, right? So for example, uh, in one piece of research, we looked at over a million nonprofit tax returns over a six-year period to identify what are those factors that are associated with long-term growth in fundraising? And one of the analysis we looked at was to simply divide organizations into those that consistently receive gifts only from cash and those that consistently receive gifts, including gifts from uh, securities. Okay, Over a five-year period, the average combined growth rate in fundraising income for the cash-only organizations was 11%. Now, that is the same as the total combined inflation rate over that period of time. So cash-only fundraising organizations, on average, are just treading water. Now, you compare that to organizations that were consistently raising gifts, including gifts of securities, both at the beginning and at the end of that five-year time period. Those organizations, on average, grew their fundraising income by 66% as compared to just 11%. Now, this is limited to organizations that are raising at least a million dollars a year. But otherwise, it's looking at most all of the organizations in the whole country over a uh, five- or six-year period. So it's a massive, massive difference. Uh, And part of this, I think, relates to the psychological change that happens when a donor makes a gift from their wealth for the first time. You can think of it this way. If you ask a simple question, which is more valuable, a $10,000 gift of cash from a donor or a $10,000 gift of appreciated securities? Well, if you ask your CFO, the CFO is going to say, well, the cash, because the securities are a pain in the butt. We've got to retitle them. We've got to sell them. Don't want to go through all that process. If you ask the financial advisor, the financial advisor is going to say the gift of securities because it's cheaper for the donor. They get a double tax benefit. Even if they're uh, not itemizing their taxes, they get a tax benefit uh, by avoiding the capital gains tax. But there's a reason why for the fundraiser, that kind of gift is so much more powerful. And that reason is that this is a gift from the donor's wealth. Whenever you get the donor to make that first gift that makes their wealth donation relevant, that can be transformational. I'll give you another example. We looked at a study, and this is from a a nationally representative study that's been going on for over a quarter of a century with adults over the age of 50 to see what happens to their charitable giving 
after they first include a gift in their will uh, to charity. So for many people, this is the first time they've ever committed to a gift out of their wealth rather than out of their disposable income. And on average, what we see is that after a person includes that gift in their estate plan, their current giving increases by more than 75%. And this is sustained two years later, six years later, eight years later. It's a very consistent effect and a very dramatic effect that happens when a donor makes that kind of a decision. So we get to this very powerful concept that frightens most fundraisers because it is so much easier to just ask for the cash. Well, we want to start with the reality that as a fundraiser, part of our role should be to help the donor. If we can help the donor give smarter, and as a financial advisor, I'll say it's much smarter to give appreciated assets, that's what we should be doing. Now, I know, look, you go to any AFP meeting, you'll hear tons of donor-centered happy talk, right? But this isn't happy talk. This is where the rubber really meets the road, where it's going to be a pain in the rear for us to process this gift, but it's better for the donor because they get extra uh, tax benefits from that. Now, how can we do this sort of thing? All we've got to do is just share stories of people like the donor who make gifts like this. And you can communicate in that story why these are so powerful and effective, why these are essentially a smarter way to give. So the very first thing I'll share with fundraisers, uh, the very first strategy or technique is, uh, I like to call it the charitable swap. And that's the idea that you bring up the idea of a gift of securities and a donor says, yeah, that's a good idea, but you know, I think I want to hang on to those shares of uh, Apple. Uh, for I'm not ready to, to sell those yet. Well, the reality is they can gift you those shares of Apple stock, and they can immediately take the cash they were going to have donated to you, and immediately, at the same day, the same moment, purchase identical brand new shares of Apple stock. So their portfolio doesn't change at all, but what has changed is before they had old shares of stock with massive capital gain in them. Now they have brand new shares of stock with no capital gain at all. So it's a very powerful way to get the donor to start thinking about making gifts of appreciated assets. Another reason this is so powerful is, well, think of it this way. The first time you ever made a gift of household items to a charity shop, right? Furniture and clothes and whatever, maybe you were moving, whatever the case might be. The next time you get ready to move or you're doing redecorating and you've got all of these extra things, what comes to mind? Oh, well, we can give this to charity, right? It's the same idea. The first time the donor realizes that those capital gains taxes are optional, all of a sudden, the next time they have a big realization event, getting ready to sell uh, an asset, getting ready to sell a business. They think about this same process. Oh, wait, I was able to avoid those capital gains taxes last time. Maybe I should do something charitable with this. 
One of the reasons that's so powerful is one of the things that we know consistently from experimental research is people are much more generous with irregular gains than they are with regular earned income. And how most people get these irregular unearned gains is from appreciated assets. So it can be very powerful on a number of different levels just to share stories with donors about what other people like them have done in their giving that involves making gifts of appreciated assets rather than gifts of disposable income. And that gets us out of the category of comparing our ask with what they just spent at Starbucks, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want our ask to be compared with other disposable income purchases. We want our ask to be compared with the big categories, such as their uh, combined, uh, you know, all of their stock holdings or their net worth. That makes a lot of sense to me. And at the same time, I have this, this, voice gnawing in the back of my mind that that says, I'm not sure that the current pool of fundraisers, broadly speaking, obviously there are some great fundraisers, but but is is there a, a qualification challenge that we face or an experience challenge that we face in getting fundraisers comfortable with this? Is it an education? Is it a training? Is it all of the above? Like, uh, I hear everything you're saying and I think it makes total sense. I just, I, I'm doubtful that a lot of fundraisers will adopt it. So here are some things that may help. When it comes to the training process, uh, if you either connect with me on LinkedIn, I'll send you a free link or just go to YouTube and type in Russell James Plan Giving. I've got actually 65 short animated videos that'll take you through everything in plan giving. They're about 15 minutes a piece. So look, honestly, if you take 15 minutes a day and you look at one of them each day, you know, give it a, a couple of months and, and, and you'll be much more comfortable. But here I think is the one thing that is most critical for fundraisers to understand. And that is to understand the point of the conversation. Mm. There are so many fundraisers who will not share a story about this topic because they're afraid that they're going to get caught in a final exam, sort of a multiple choice scenario where, uh, you know, then they're going to need to answer, well, you know, what about my uh, my uh, capital gain that's inside my C-Corp, which I, you know, own in this shell company, and then I've also got some cryptocurrency and that sort of thing. And so they get very frightened about, oh, I don't even want to bring this up. That fear comes from having the wrong goal for the conversation. Your goal for that conversation is not to be quick with the right answer, even if you know what the right answer is. Your goal for that conversation is to set up a meeting where you can present some ideas for the donor's situation. So the reality is, even if you know the answer, it's more powerful to instead say, you know, that's a great question. I think we've had some other folks that have had some really good results with some of these different strategies. I'd love to get together with some of our uh, team members and put together some ideas for you to look at. Is this something you'd have time to uh, maybe meet in the next couple of weeks or so? So when you understand that that is the goal of the conversation, then it takes off all of that fear of having to pass the multiple choice exam or, or, or the uh, you know, essay exam or, or whatever it may be. Because the idea here is that even if you knew the answer, mm -hmm. 
right? Even if you were the technical whiz bang and somebody in conversation was giving you a scenario and, and you said, oh, yes, well, we want to do a cryptocurrency charitable lead trust that pays out to a private foundation and uses a, you know, a gift annuity wrapper over that, right? Even if that, even if that was the right answer and you knew it, you shouldn't give it to the donor at that point. You should instead set up that meeting because what that does is, number one, it increases the perceived value to your advice. You're taking time to put together these proposals. It also does something very powerful for the donor. As they're thinking about this meeting, what are they thinking about? They're thinking about a charitable transfer of assets. So it is putting them in that mindset during that interim period of time. And so the idea here is that all you want to do is to set up that meeting. And once that meeting is set up, then you can ask a few questions to get a few details. You know, by the way, is there anything, uh, tell me the story of this asset. How did you uh, end up getting, is there anything uh, unusual about it? And so then the donor is more than happy to share, you know, whether it's real estate or closely held stocks or whatever it might be, the story of their asset. And at that point, you're just collecting information. And even if you don't know the first thing about plan giving, you're collecting that information. You can go back to the office make some phone calls, ask some people questions, you know, listen to 65 videos on YouTube, whatever it Quick takes. Quick 65 I, videos. Yeah, that's right. To, to put together a couple of strategies, right? And again, this doesn't have to be um, uh, sort of the uh, super complex. You're not going to be drafting any documents. We're just going to be sharing ideas about here's what some other people have found to be useful. Uh, and, you know, you could even uh, help them by uh, sharing the ideas they could take to their advisors, or, or maybe you have uh, uh, advisors in the community that you know that you could, uh, that are charity friendly, uh, that you could point them to as well. And really, you know, think of it this way I understand. Fundraisers are fantastically social people, and many of them hate math and numbers, right? <laughs> and here I'm talking, you know, uh, making them get into all the math and numbers. But think of it this way. If your job was to build relationships with people at a Star Trek convention, you think maybe you should learn a little bit about Star Trek? <laughs> yeah. Even if you don't like Star Trek that much? Yeah. If your job is to build relationships with people of wealth, people of capacity, high-capacity donors, you think maybe you should learn a little bit about things that they're concerned with? It's the same idea, right? To be able to have these conversations, to understand what they're talking about, to be able to relate to them socially. And that's really all we want to do. We want to be able to have these connections so that we can share stories about what other people have done that have been helpful for them, to put that idea into the donor's mind. And I think once fundraisers understand it as a social goal, uh, rather than a you know passing a tax law exam sort of goal, that that can make it a bit more comfortable of a process. I love that, and I will say, in the hundred episodes of this show that we've done, you are the first person to equate 
fundraising and Star Trek. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, we'll memorialize that on the audio and uh, um, I'll have to figure out how to use that more frequently now. Well, I have to say, Andrew, if you read the second book in the series, and again, I'm sharing these all for free. So connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll send them. It's called the Epic Fundraiser. And it's all about the epic hero stories, including Star Wars and The Matrix and uh, The <laughs> Hobbit. And so whatever your favorite flavor is, got lots of connections uh, awesome. in, the, uh, in the epic fundraiser. So you, you mentioned the, the four-letter word math a minute ago. Yes. And, and I, I want to dig into that because I, I found it interesting um, that you had uh, quite a robust section in the book about this. Um, and, and about some of the, the risks and the pitfalls, but also how to use math effectively um, in, in fundraising. So talk a little bit about um, some of the risks that fundraisers face in, in getting deep into math in their pitches and, and, and also how we should think about effectively using math to our advantage. Sure. So, you know, I think it helps to start with understanding the neural processes as involving two different systems. So we have the social emotional system that motivates the gift. It's the engine for philanthropy. The math finance system, it's actually the error detection system. Hmm. You can think of it as the brake rather than the engine. Now, both of these systems are important, but they're important at different times. A gift decision must start with motivation. It, it has to start with social, emotional imagery and story. Now, math and finance can then become important in order to prevent an objection. But math and finance can't be the motivation. So we don't start with math. We start instead with story. We start with the social, emotional motivation for the gift. But recognize also that when we do get to math, that, that math is not just a number. It's also a feeling. So what I mean by that is that whether a gift is large or small in feeling depends upon the story. In other words, it depends upon the reference point. So, for example, how does this amount compare with what others in my social comparison group are doing? Uh, or as we just talked about, am I comparing this gift amount with my disposable income purchases, what I just spent at Starbucks? Or am I comparing this amount with my wealth holdings? So by altering these reference points, we can alter the feeling around the number, and this can actually make larger gifts possible. Does this feel like a loss, or am I just sharing part of a gain as with a gift of appreciated assets? Now, now, these don't change the numbers, but they can change giving because they change the story of the numbers. Okay. So one of the things that in that section, if I, and I, I hope I got this right, I, I was interested in what you talked about related to uh, matching gifts and the numbers around that. And, and I, I believe that what I read was that you had done some research related to, you know, whether it was, say, a, a three-time match or a one-time match. And I think that, you know, the prevailing thinking in the industry is, well, if you ask for, you know, a three-time match, people are automatically going to give more because it's a, a bigger opportunity. But did I read correctly in your research that, that you found that it doesn't actually move the needle? 
Yeah, that's right. And so we get into weird math when it comes to fundraising. So one area of weird math is, for example, to uh, an uh, to an economist or an accountant, there's no uh, mathematical difference between a match and a rebate. So a match is where you know I, I give a dollar, somebody else gives another dollar, so my dollar has a two dollar impact. Um, or the rebate concept is I give $2 and somebody else then gives me a dollar back. Still, it was $1 net cost uh, and I make a $2 impact. So from an accounting perspective, those are identical scenarios. Both scenarios, somebody on the outside is adding in a dollar and it's increasing the impact of my gift. But it turns out that in experiments, those are not at all the same scenario in terms of how people respond. People respond very positively to the match concept, but they don't respond positively at all, relatively speaking, to the rebate concept. Well, why is that? If the math is the same, why is there that difference? Well, because there's a story difference. Mm -hmm. The idea of a match is the idea that I made a gift. And because of the smart way that I made this gift, it has an even bigger impact, right? So that's a story of me winning a bigger victory with my gift. Whereas the rebate story, that's a story of me making a gift and I have some self-interested benefit as well, right? That's actually a worse story, not as compelling because it's a little bit mixed where, yeah, I did some good stuff, but I also got something out of the deal as well. Well, in the same way that that match story is a better story because I made a gift and it now has a bigger impact because of the match. If that match is one to one or two to one or three to one, the story is the same. Hmm. I made a gift and because of the match, it has a bigger impact. So what we see in some of the experimental research is that because the story is the same, if all you're changing is the number and you know we're making it two or three or six, you're not changing the story. And so the actual giving behavior doesn't appear to change in many of these experiments. Okay. That's interesting. So we have just a few minutes left. I, I, I want to tackle two other things that, that you addressed in, in this book. And one is to get your, your point of view and, and thinking around what you found related to the impact of uh, sort of overhead and efficiency metrics in the giving decisions. And then also, um, you know, kind of on a similar vein, what, what did you find uh, related to any, any work that you did around um, donors, donors being able to restrict giving? Um, sure. Well, it turns out these are actually connected concepts. Uh, overhead or efficiency, it can be important, but it turns out it's only important as story. <laughs> so to begin with, these are financial accounting numbers that we're dealing with. So they cannot serve as motivation for the gift. They can only be the brake, not the engine. So having 100% efficiency won't get you the gift. Hmm. But yes, if a donor is confronted with negative financial information, it can put a brake on giving. But even here, the result is more a matter of story rather than pure numbers. So, for example, one study showed that avoidance of high overhead went away if we used different words to describe it. So not using overhead, but instead using building long-term capacity, well, Mm -hmm. that made the negative effect go away. Also, the resistance to high overhead completely disappears when donors are allowed to restrict their donations. In other words, high overhead isn't a problem as long as someone else is paying for it. (laughs) Now, from a rational accounting perspective, 
this is nonsense. The project costs what it costs. Right. Somehow assigning your dollars to some special part of the project doesn't increase or decrease its efficiency in the least. Money is fungible. But notice, the assignment of your dollars keeps your story intact. Your dollars are assigned to the compelling parts of the project. So you are the hero because your dollars are the one that makes the visualizable impact. In other words, they win the victory. So, so this is why Charity Water's model works well, is what you're saying. Very powerful, very powerful. But here's, a, here's what's even sort of really weird in the results beyond what Charity Water has done is that there's some really cool experimental research that shows that gift restrictions can be compelling, not because of any actual accounting impact, because they make a, a better story. In other words, several studies find that offering gift restrictions works even if almost nobody chooses to use those restrictions. Hmm. Offering the gift restrictions actually increases giving among those who choose to give where needed most. In some cases, 98% of the donors just selected where needed most, but those that got the offers for the restricted gifts actually gave more. So the idea here is that the restriction creates a visualizable image of impact. That's a compelling story, and that's completely separate from any technical contractual rights that are involved here. That's actually the most powerful part of these uh, uh, restrictions, or from the donor's perspective, they're not restrictions, they're instructions. The only issue is who gets to put the instructions with the money. So I, I can imagine there are some fundraisers listening in going, oh, crap, he just told our bosses that he's going to raise more money if, if we allow donors to restrict things. And how is that going to impact my, my you know, fundraising numbers for the year? Um, do, can you talk at all about the level of increase that you saw in those experiments? Like, um, is, the, is, this, is the juice worth the squeeze kind of question on that? Sure. So there's a lot of different ways to reach some compromises that make both sides happy. Uh, so, for example, if we've got planned projects that are going to be taking place, uh, then as far as the CFO is concerned, if we have gifts that are restricted to already budgeted items, that's the same as an unbudgeted item. So we can actually uh, do this in a way where we're selling a lot of the items, a lot of the plans, a lot of the budgets that uh, budget items that we're already planning to uh, to use, and so we can begin with uh, with that idea to kind of have a, a bit of a, a bit of a compromise. Um, there's actually some other ways to get there. So I mentioned that it turns out that yes, gift restrictions are powerful, but remember I said they're powerful as story. So one of the other things that we see in experiments is it works oftentimes just as well to give examples of the kinds of things that your gifts are used for. So, uh, for example, we can, uh, we can list these different projects and the impact that those projects make, even if we're not actually asking for restricted gifts and you know and even if it's you know very clear that these gifts will go where needed most they'll be used for projects like example a example b example c and in fact one of the ways that we can make those just as powerful as a gift restriction is to ask donors a very important question first not just tell them what we're doing but ask them among these projects what's most important to you 
uh, or however you might want to put that where you're asking the donors to rate or to value. What's most important for them? What connects with them? What should we be focusing more on? Because notice what that does is it takes the example expenditure and it causes donors to engage with that example expenditure, to envision that example expenditure, and then to value that example expenditure. Well, that's actually the same process that makes gift restrictions powerful, that it is that visualization process, it is that evaluation process, it is that ability to place a value, relatively speaking, on a particular project that I can say, yeah, that really connects with what's important to me. And I really go through that process of envisioning the outcome. That's what's powerful about it. So the reason I say that is that I know the CFOs will freak out, but not if we're just talking about examples and we're asking people to rate what's most important to them, where we're not creating legal and contract and accounting responsibilities here. We're sharing stories and asking donors to share opinions. We can get to that same kind of an effect, uh, especially in a broad-based kind of communication effort. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So final question for you before I let you go for the day. Um, what was the the most surprising learning uh, that you um that you came to as you as you conducted this research and went through the process of writing this series? So for me, the most unexpected aha moment that turned into the entire theme of the series and one specific book, the Epic Fundraiser, focused on it, was when I was taking all of these pieces on what was compelling for donors. And then I started to get into the academic research on the universal hero story and the concept of the uh, Jungian archetypes and how that relates to people's identity um, and how these things all actually were using different language to say the exact same things. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's what was so powerful was to understand that this is not just surface level tips and tricks here, 12 things to try, although there's a lot of that. It actually is looking at really deep-seated identity connections for the donor and the donor's journey through life. And when we reconceptualize fundraising as not just a process you know, where we're trying to hit the donor up, right? We're, we're trying to go grab that cash, but instead to conceptualize that where the fundraiser is really the donor's guiding sage on this journey of being able to make an impact that reflects the donor's values and life story. To understand that, you know, philanthropy is not really about uh, wealth transfer. Philanthropy is really about putting love and beauty into the world. And if we can help our donors do that in a way that's meaningful to them, that's actually a job. That's actually a career that the work itself has meaning beyond just, yeah, we're going to have cash for uh, the organization that we care about. Um, so that deep connection with the hero story and also understanding the donors and the fundraiser's role in 
those uh, universal elements that are common to humans across cultures. For me, that was the most unexpected and ultimately the most powerful connection. That is, I think, a wonderful place for us to end. And it, it's, it makes total sense to me. Um, I know that you have 65 15-minute videos on YouTube. Um, beyond that, how else, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? So the easiest way is just connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, I'll I'll accept that. I'll respond to you with a uh, a, a message that get that connects with uh, free digital audio copies of all my books uh, and uh, you know academic stuff, um, uh, slides, slide decks from all my presentations, all that sort of thing. Uh, so so that's typically uh, the easiest way. I mean, you can buy them on Amazon. That's fine if you want to kill some trees and you like the paper version. That that's all good. Uh, but I, I will uh, be be happy one on one to uh, uh, to share those uh, with uh, with any folks in the industry. That's awesome. Dr. James, thank you for being here. Thanks for sharing these insights with us. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. Have you read my Amazon number one best-selling book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How You Can Avoid Them Yet? It's the book that I wrote with expertise from over 20 nonprofit leaders and their 300 years of combined experience. You can download it for free today. Just visit andrewolson.net and go to the free resources tab on my site.